0: DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. What's your superpower?
1: (laughs) I can read minds.
0: Patrice Colors is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter and an extremely inspiring activist and organizer and the author of a fantastic autobiography called When They Call You a Terrorist, co-written by Asha Bendele. I've known Patrice for years and I'm so impressed by her focus on building community and tending to the oppressed and working toward liberation. Black Lives Matter is a critical civil rights organization that has already had a significant impact on America. You can read more about Black Lives Matter in the era of Trump in my recent Rolling Stone story, A Year Inside the Black Lives Matter Movement. Just Google Black Lives Matter and Torre and Rolling Stone. But that's for later. Now it's time for Patrice Colors, a woman who's trying to change the world and succeeding. This is Torre Show. I'm Torre, and I want this show to be about learning how to build towards success by listening to successful people. I'm inviting all sorts of folks, artists, entertainers, business people, poker stars. And I think from that list, you see, I have a broad definition of success. It's not just about making money. It's about living with purpose and setting big goals and achieving them. And in that regard, Patrice Colors is insanely successful. When you're in her presence, you can see how inspirational she is how dignified she is how thoughtful and highly educated and what a warrior she is this is a woman who fears that she might be killed because of the work she's doing who thinks her phone is tapped and sees police officers surveilling her house and yet she continues soldiering on she feels like she has to I always enjoy my time talking with Patrice. I always walk away recharged and inspired and enlivened by the spiritual energy she gives off. And I hope you feel the same after this. So, Patrice, what is it about you that has been most responsible for your success?
1: What is it about me? I think it's that I have always, since I was a small child and as long as I can remember, fought for myself and my family and my community. Uh, I have, um, growing up in in poverty and witnessing just like a lot of sadness and witnessing a lot of decimation, I, I just knew that there was more. And I was never that person that was interested in like, I'm gonna leave the hood and like, you know, get rich somewhere. I was always like, how can I how can I lift up my family? How can I lift up myself? Um, I was the child who, you know, when there was Yellow Pages and not Google, opened up the Yellow Pages at 12 years old and looked for dance classes uh, that I could go to and got myself a scholarship. And so I was always, like, very resilient and um, had a bigger vision for myself than what the state was trying to give to me and my family.
0: I look at you as a successful visionary, Organizer, leader, inspirer of people, Mm -hmm. Um, if inspirer is the word. (laughs) Um, What – I want to go a little deeper on this. What talents or attitudes do you hold that helped you be so successful as organizer, visionary, leader, inspirer?
1: I can see a way out of a lot of things. So (laughs) – um. I think what's important, what I think what is important in this question is that I have always been that person that's like, this can be bigger, this can be better. I could be bigger, I could be better. Um, I've always led with my vision and my heart. Uh, even though, um, you know, example, when my brother was um, 26 years old and facing a life sentence and we had no money, I had, I, I wasn't you know, visible. I didn't have power. I remember telling his public defender, go tell my brother that I'm getting him a private attorney and I'm going to, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to handle it essentially. Very Olivia Pope. And I remember him, the public defender, going to the back and then coming back to me and, and the public defender saying to me, your brother said, don't worry about it. Like, he'll just take, you know, the time. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to allow him to spend the rest of his, you know, Life inside a cell and after that I literally myself organized my community and people around the country then there was no social media so it was very much about I mean there was MySpace but you know who was using MySpace to do what we do now <laughs> so it was very <laughs> much about writing people letters talking to organizations and over two weeks we raised you know six thousand dollars and it was it was one that was one of those moments where I was like I literally can do anything that I want and um this is how I've always been making a way out of nothing it's just my personality um and I, and I also want to credit my mother my mother raised four children on um on very little money and I still now that I have my own child I still am like how in the hell did you do this like you had three jobs. You had four kids. Like, she she really embodied this type of resilience that I think I take up in my life now.
0: I mean, this sense that you had of I can do anything I want, combined with a selflessness, right? Cause, you know, because you're using it to help. You're talking about your family, your community. Um, that's really powerful. I mean, how do you? How did you in your life get to that deep sense of like? Uh, you know, I I can make anything happen?
1: Mm, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I think <laughs> now that I have a child, I really do believe some stuff is personality and you come into the world with, and I'm deeply spiritual, and I think that, you know, children sort of come back. You know, I believe in reincarnation, and I, I believe that we come back t- and tell our own stories and write our own narratives. And so that in some way, I think this is part of my life path, Um to be this kind of person. But in other ways, I do think that I was um, given a lot of um, space and care, um, both from my mother, but also both my father's, my father that raised me and my biological father. I think, you know, people always were like, you're different, you know, <laughs> you're like a different kind of person. And so they really, no one in my life and in my in my family ever made me feel badly for being sort of like a weirdo you know everyone was like that's Patrice like you know I got a lot of encouragement um and um you know at a certain point I also received a significant amount of praise from teachers I mean I think when you're growing up as a black child and a teacher sort of deems you as gifted there's a way in which you get propelled to, um, you know, harness that, quote, gift. Uh, I think there's a, it's a double-edged sword, though, because um, given that I was gifted, I was sent off to a bunch of white schools and was schooled around a lot of white people, which completely um, challenged my confidence um, as I got older. And I really had to, you know, struggle with um, what it meant to be a black person in a, in a largely white world when I went to school and then come home to a world of, you know, a, you know, multiracial community that was in poverty. And so I think there's this piece that like, even though I was labeled as gifted really early on and sent off to these schools, there wasn't a lot of ease and peace um, being, you know, forced into these environments.
0: A lot of us have dealt with that going to a good school mm-hmm. around white kids and having those interpersonal struggles, you know, and some identity struggles and then home life is totally different. So how did you deal with that without losing your mind? <laughs> That's a real ass question because
1: a lot of a lot of folks end up I I grew up with a lot of folks, um Black people in particular, so young women of color who ended up in psychiatric facilities um, losing their mind, like literally. I grew up in a house that was very private, and I think this is that sort of like A a common black people experience across the world, where our families are like, "Don't be telling our business," you know. So I grew up in that, and I was literally the opposite. Like so much so that my mother would sit me down before we left the house, and she would say, "What are we not going to say when we leave the house?" (laughs) Because, because I just ran my damn mouth. Like I, I, and it was, it was like a part of. You know, now that I look back, I was like, "Oh, it's just I was such a free spirit, and I would just like share with people." So I, they had to really kind of drill in me. You know, you can't share things, um, but it's it, it's not in my nature. So early on, as I started to deal with um, and had to deal with being in these environments, I just started to be honest and named stuff and talked about it. And I think that that I think when we Silence ourselves when we um, make the decision to be quote private. And although I understand that there's there's deep and profound reasons why Black people said my you know don't share our business. Um, but I think when when we create and provide spaces for people to share, to release, we allow for a new type of visioning um, because as I started to share and release, I, was, I started to meet other Black people, right? Like, oh, you grew up like that too? Oh, you know, you're at this school because of that too? Oh, you actually live, you know, you're being bused three hours from your neighborhood too? Like, there was this way in which being able to share those experiences allowed for new trajectories. And so I think that's how I stayed sane was like building up a community and providing a new type of conversation about, all right, we're all you know we're all the tokens here. Like, what do we do with this, and 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 how do we overcome it?
0: Uh, <clears throat> so you're saying the adults around you are giving you lots of positive messages, and that is this sort of fuel or perhaps water to the flower that you are becoming, that is allowing you to grow and blossom, right? But then you talk about when you're 16 and you come out to your family right? That that did not go well, Mm -hmm. right? So how does that rejection from these folks who had been giving you this positive uh, sense about yourself, how does that affect you long term when they were like, well, we love these parts of you, but that part of you we're going to reject?
1: It's hard and it's complicated because I didn't formally come out to my mother until I was probably in my early 20s, but I was I was queer at sixteen and she knew it. And this is a common theme in communities of color, you know, where we don't say it, but everybody knows it. And you know, my mother I remember we had been um given sort of an eviction notice um the terms that vacate uh, we were renting out someone's condo and they wanted to sell it and they gave us like thirty days and uh, my mother you know couldn't couldn't muster up the funds to move us somewhere um so we ended up moving in with her then husband and um we were in a one bedroom it was you know myself my sister her husband her husband's mother and my mom and I remember sleeping on the living room floor in a sleeping bag and bringing my girlfriend over and I, my mother being like, she can't come over anymore. And in fact, if you're going to continue this lifestyle, you need to be out of my house. Till this day, my mother says she did not kick me out the house. Um, she <laughs> says, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that didn't happen. And like she scours the internet about uh, around like this conversation. And I, I think what is important, especially for people who are going to listen to this is like when your child is young and they're coming of age and figuring out their sexuality all they need is a safe place to do that and figure that out and when you tell a child you can't be in my home if you're going to continue to be yourself that is kicking your child out that is rejecting them and it was painful and it was hurtful and it was there were you know I it's like very strange and I can't even explain I think something was in the water but there was um, many of us, there's probably, I would say, like ten to twenty of us, all women of color, um, some white women, who all came out at this around the same time, and and we all came out as queer. And um, during that time, we were pretty much being kicked out of our homes, or our parents were being, you know, feeling skeptical about us. So we really built a bond around healing from um, being rejected from our from our families.
0: What's your superpower?
1: <laughs> I can read minds. Well, I'll tell you how. Really? I, I, let me re- rewind. I have, like, really intense premonitions or, like, I can see into people's situations, like, in real life. Like I, And usually it comes in dream form, so I have this very vivid dream. My mother has this, too. She knew when I was pregnant. Um, she knew when I was going to get married. She dreamt all of it. So I have dreams of people and sometimes it's hella random and sometimes it's super like it's my family or my family members or my community and those dreams like come to life and I like will usually confront the person like hey this happened are you okay or you know something happened and they'll be like oh, oh my god how did you know that and I was like I dreamt it so I think this is like a <laughs> thing that I and have inherited from the, the maternal the, the 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 matrilineal side
0: have you dreamt things relating to the movement that you then (laughs) acted on because you dreamt it like well I must right so I'm gonna go through that door because the dream told me go through that door even though I'm scared
1: have I I've definitely dreamt stuff about the movement but way more like dark and like very Mm. not very scary which maybe that's why we're in this Trump era (laughs)
0: like what tell me like what
1: you know, I I think when you're like in a, a movement moment and you're dealing with lots of you, you're having to respond to lots of violence, it's hard not to then internalize that violence or like think that, you know, it's going to happen to you. So I've definitely had lots of like cops coming in my home dreams or like, you know, those types of dreams like violence. Um, and although in the most recent um, past, I haven't had cops haven't raided my home I have experienced multiple raids throughout my life both childhood and you know in my late 20s when I first started BLM and when I first started my local organization so I think that also might be it like that's just some like some PTSD shit but Mm -hmm. there is I think there's this way in which uh, maybe not in my dream world but more in my like imagining world um, that when we created Black Lives Matter there was this like deep vision that this this hashtag that we then created into a political platform would become global and just coming back from australia i am seeing the deep and profound impact our movement has had on black people and first nations people around the world
0: i mean you know you and i have talked a lot and you know one thing that that that, that bothers me is when the notion of you guys creating this is portrayed as something that just happened. It just went. She just wrote hashtag Black Lives Matter and it just went viral and suddenly everyone was talking about that. And it it takes away the agency, the work, the intentionality, you know, and and this is something that typically happens to black people that things just happened for us, but white people worked and thought and strategized and made it happen. And you guys, the three of you, Opal and Alicia, you guys worked to make this go viral Mm -hmm. and you worked to build this it didn't just sprout up on its own organically so talk about after the famous letter Mm -hmm. the work that you three did to make this spread
1: well you know what's important um is you know alicia wrote the words i put a hashtag to it talked to Alicia about let's make this let's make this a bigger project. Opal came on a couple days couple days later, developed sort of the infrastructure so it could become a bigger project. And and then we sat and did exactly what organizers do, which is go and organize people around it. And so we had calls with uh, black uh black organizers for leadership and dignity, which is called Bold, um, with Denise Perry. She brought uh hosted a national call for us with black organizers across the country. Um, we met with um, Rashad Robinson of Color of Change. We, you know, talked to our own local organizations about using Black Lives Matter as a hashtag. I mean, we really set the ground for Black Lives Matter to become a thing that Black people across the country could and and across the globe could utilize. And those that first year, from 2013 to 2014, we weren't saying we were the founders of Black Lives Matter. To be honest with you, that intervention came after. Um, the non-indictment verdict of Darren Wilson because we saw that Black Lives Matter was starting to be used by everybody, but co-opted by some. And we were like, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we were these three Black women who all were organizers. We had no visibility. People didn't know our names like that. And I made the personal intervention, and I remember going on Twitter with my maybe like 300-something followers and was like, if y'all are going to use Black Lives Matter, just know that it's myself, Alicia and Opal, that started it. And I put all our names. And it was the a lot of the black older women, um, you know, folks that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s that were like, we had no idea. Let's retweet. Let's share. And they really fought for us to be in the space so that we could take back the narrative. And I remember Alicia writing a very long post about Black Lives Matter that is actually the love, um, the, her story. And I, I hit her up and I said, I th- actually think that post should be an article. And we talked to Darna Moore, who was then one of the um, um, co curators of the Feminist Wire and he's like we can host it. And so she wrote this long article myself Opal Darnell and I think a couple more people were editing it, working on it. And then she put it out and that was the love story, the the her story of black lives matter. And it was an intervention to say who created it. It was an intervention also around pol- uh, the politics of black lives matter that we were a movement that was about all black lives and not just some. And it was um a a a, a the the story As we understood it, um, it was a story uh, that we felt was necessary to bring to the forefront because we know if we don't write our own history, uh, we'll get written out of it. And so that was a a very important intervention. And from there, we start the global network. We were like, okay, there's momentum. People are in it. People are using Black Lives Matter. Let's take this as as a, a moment to say we are a global network. Let's build out a chapter system. And now we have 40 chapters across the globe.
0: Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I was reading your book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, which is extraordinary, (laughs) co-written with Asha Bendele. And, you know, you're saying in the book, Opal, Alicia, and I never wanted or needed to be the center of anything. We were purposeful about decentralizing our role in the work. But neither did we want or deserve to be erased. I could tell you it was painful to watch the story of Black Lives Matter told without us, but the truth is that it was enraging. Hmm. And I, I, I am a little confused because I don't <laughs> n- know where the erasure is, because <laughs> uh, you know what the world, the story that I know is always. These three women, this triumvirate, created Black Lives Matter. They are the founders. <laughs> a- 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 and there's no question of that. And I don't know who's questioning or challenging that. That's so, because
1: we're... you're a smart journalist. <laughs> <laughs> so Compliments won't get you out of there. this. It's
0: more about you than everybody else. Um... Where is this erasure occurring? You guys are, I mean, you didn't want to be famous, but you you are. And the fame's not the point. But it, it's always about you guys. I, now. Now it I, is I, I, to help um, me. definitely it wasn't it wasn't
1: when we started it and if i don't i don't it wouldn't have been if we didn't intervene um and sometimes i'm like it's the blessing and curse right if we didn't intervene who knows who would have taken black lives matter but i think there's also this what's important is there's like a backstory that often isn't told which is When it first went viral after the non-indictment, people didn't actually really know who we were. Um, They knew us locally, but they didn't know us nationally or internationally. And that's the the moment of erasure. And that's what I'm pointing out, too, in the book. Um, And uh, I think the other piece is that even even, um, in spaces, and I think... Uh, this is because people are very fixated on this idea of a new MLK, a new Malcolm X, you know, even in spaces with, you know, older movement people, um, uh, mostly men, there's this tendency to uh, undermine or minimize. It's the microaggressions of what it means to be a black woman, even though we've created this huge international project that it's still hard for people to understand, like, oh, they they aren't just sort of the face of this thing. They are the architects of it. Um, they've helped build it up. They've helped sustain it. They've helped fund it. Um, that becomes, you know, a challenging conversation. And I, I don't think we would have had to fight so hard <clears throat> to be visible if we were cis black men. I think that if there's three co-founders of Black Lives Matter, cis black men, it would be a different kind of conversation. And I wouldn't have to talk about black women erasure Um, We've set the tone around how black women, black queer people, trans people, black people that are disabled, black people who've been incarcerated, who have been convicted. We've set the tone on how our movement relates to these kinds of black people. And that wasn't happening before Black Lives Matter.
0: Is there a person who you are saying is or was erasing you or are you talking about just media in general was rumbling forward telling the story without being aware that's exactly it media
1: played a big part in both the erasure but then obviously from our you know our own challenging and other people challenging have pivoted uh around who they visibilize as co-founders there's also a hard thing around like what you what then happens when you become a founder of something. Uh, it, it it puts a particular type of weight, even though we are a decentralized movement. Um, people want to see the founders. Right. Um, and I think there's this there's a new thing that we're trying to do, which is like there's so many people in this movement, not just the three of us. Three people cannot sustain a movement. It takes hundreds of people. It takes thousands of people. And there's incredible work happening around the world. Uh, And we saw that, you know, uh, in Australia, when I went to go receive the Sydney Peace Prize, Alicia and Opal were supposed to come, weren't able to make it. Um, I went, uh, one of our Black Lives Matter co-founders of Canada went, and one of our local chapter leads went in Long Beach. And it was like a hard moment because you... Felt the disappointment, you know, of of the people on the ground in Australia. And we had to remind people this is a leaderful movement. So even in these moments where we've sort of been declared these founders, we're trying to challenge that idea that we're the only people and that, in fact, we have to evolve uh, from this sort of like superhero model and, and make a decision about like this is a movement of hundreds and thousands of black people and our allies fighting for our lives.
0: You said to me before that you need to do this because there are so many people dying that you can't, you could never feel like I'm just sitting at home doing nothing Mm -hmm. while all these people are dying. I need to be doing something. But how do you keep your spirit up amidst all this death and uh, as as well as all the legislative, uh, excuse me, judicial failures that then follow the deaths? I mean, you know, you... And the folks who, you know, in, in, immerse themselves in BLM are really drowning in these stories of death that seem to come every week. Uh, how do you, how do you just just care for yourself and just keep yourself able to keep going? It's hard. I want
1: to be really candid. Um, up until. I went to Australia. I was feeling incredibly demoralized and really challenged by the infighting in our movement, really challenged by our our inability to and this is not a judgment of our movement, but more of a like of of human culture, our inability to figure out ways to hold people accountable and also, you know, be loving and generous and graceful and and have an abolitionist. Um, framework Uh, I've I've I was feeling demoralized by this administration by 45 and his administration I was just downright like I'm doing this work because it's the work I believe in but not necessarily because my heart was feeling inspired and I went to Australia met all these First Nations and and Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders and South Sea Islanders and African migrants and just there was so much excitement and so much hope. And it kind of reminded me, like, at the very beginning of BLM, like, they're having their moment right now where they're literally having, like, conversations they've never had. And I was like, yes, this is this is it. Like, this is it. Like, global Black liberation looks like fighting even when it's not exciting or inspiring. And I came home uh, with a renewed sense of energy. And so I think part of what I'm saying is... Um, one, Black people, especially Black Americans, leave, go other places where other Black people are, talk to them, see what their movement is looking at, um, have have exchanges with other Black people around the world. And I think that we're so isolated here and it's so sad here for Black people on a daily basis. It could get really um, uh, demoralizing. Um, I think, two, I have a deep investment in health And wellness and healing justice. Um, and sometimes I do it really well for myself and sometimes I'm not that great, but I I'm invested in the framework and the practice and, and I'm invested in our movement developing that framework and practice. And so healing justice becomes, um, uh, in its practical sense, like me working out, me doing meditation, me seeing a therapist on a weekly basis, like really taking that time for myself, um, me trying to get over my, you know, cell phone addiction, as my partner says, <laughs> and like put the phone down, Patrice. And so like modeling the behavior that I want. And I think lastly, you know, building a black family has been incredibly frightening and also really healing. And as I i am with my child and my husband and and my mom, my mom lives with us sometime um, s- some weeks out of the month and just like spending that time and care with my family um, has been very grounding.
0: I'm sorry, you're married to a man, trans man. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> no, all right, okay, okay. okay. I, I knew enough about your history. I'm like, what? Excuse me for not knowing that part of it. <laughs> it's um, all good. What do you think is the impact of so many people, black people, having these images of black people being murdered? In their minds, it's and, terrible. You know, the, the it's, short-term memory sees yeah. Tamir next to Eric, next to Sandra, next to on and on and on. Uh, you know, what is what is the impact of us having these snuff films playing in our mind? It's terrible. It's complete
1: PTSD. You know, c- curating. It's. Um, I, I say this often, but we really live in a culture that is obsessed with Black death and uses Black death on, you know, loop to talk about Black communities. And I think that deeply impacts our emotional well-being and our, you know, mental health. I remember reading about... um, it was, it was two two articles. I'm thinking of that one article where you know the white woman is pulled over by the cop and she's scared as hell, and he's like, "We don't, we only kill black people," you know. Mm. Uh, he was obviously being satirical, but it was like not not funny at all. Not funny. And then I, I think there was another something else that I read about a black woman being pulled over, and or a black man, black person for sure, and that person being so frightened. And it was actually a police officer's response. He wrote a Long Facebook message about it. I don't know if you remember this Torre, and he basically described in the Facebook message. I pulled over a woman the other night. She was speeding. I came up to the window, and she was scared, visibly scared, shaking. And he, you know, he wrote this in his article. And I had a remind, like I had. I told her that I was. She was safe. I wasn't going to kill her. You know, and that there was this way in which, even though um, she, you know, it, maybe it's not quote. Logical that she was responding that way. There was no seeming threat. That at this point for Black people, and seeing the onslaught of our murders and brutality on on going viral, that is that lives in our bodies. And so I know for me, whenever I see a police, I I hear sirens. Like I tighten up. I my heart starts to speed up. And that's for years and years of having to be around law enforcement that had completely, you know, humiliated and brutalized my family and community. And then I have to see it every day on my social media feed. Um, and I've chosen to do, you know, my whole, to commit my whole life to law enforcement accountability. It, it, it has a, a deep impact.
0: I mean, the, the you talk a lot about the police in and your traumatization by the police uh, in your book. And some of that comes from you being a black person in America. But some of it is coming because you are Patrisse Colors of Black Lives Matter. Um, How do you keep going when the police are parked outside your home, you know, coming into your home, doing things to intimidate you? I mean, we've talked before about you fear that they may kill you. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you keep going in the face of those sorts of things? (laughs) I don't think about it too
1: much. Uh, It's not what I wake up with. Um, I'll tell you the times I think about it the most is when I'm out public speaking and being super visible. That's when I'm most scared because it's not just police, it's vigilantes. Um, You never know who's showing up in these spaces. And on the one hand, I've thought about, like, should I have people get you know, should I have people go through metal detectors? Should I have people be patted down? And I'm like, do I really want to create a criminalized environment to come see me speak? The irony, right? And then on mm-hmm. the other hand, when I leave open, you know, public events, um, even though at all my public events I have security, there's still this risk, right? Malcolm had security and the brother still was gunned down. So there's this mm-hmm. part of me that on an everyday basis I'm not thinking about how someone can you know kill me but there are moments very particular moments I'm going on a very very extensive book tour across this country Canada and many other countries and I'm scared I'm scared and I don't lead with my fear otherwise I wouldn't do anything but I definitely um, see it necessary to talk about it out loud
0: a lot of people would be in your shoes would feel the fear and would stay home or it would change their presentation. I don't I think you are feeling the fear and then doing what you would do even if that fear was not there. How do you do that? I think it's a larger commitment to
1: seeing forth the mission of Black Lives Matter and the mission of being a part of a, you know, black led movement. Uh, being a part of a legacy of a black-led movement that has been fighting for its liberation for 500 years. So there's that piece. Um, it's a commitment. And I have to remind myself that my ancestors, many elders, lived through very similar dynamics and situations as I have and didn't give up um, and really held that space and tension. There's Asada Shakur that's living in exile, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for many, many decades now and have— and she risked everything for us, and while it sounds a little bit like, as I'm talking about it out loud, I'm like, "Ooh, is that really what I want to be doing?" It is what I'm doing, and this is the, and it's the commitment that I've decided. And so, I think while I'm doing it, though, it's best that I'm also trying to foster healthy relationships with my family and community because anything can happen. Uh, I lost my father when I was twenty six years old. He was not supposed to die when he was fifty one but he did. and i am um, I know that life is short and I, lo- I know black life is short, and so spending the quality of time with my family and and my community is really precious.
0: When you talk about the infighting that is going on within the movement? What are you referring to? And can you characterize like, you know, are there is there two different sort of philosophical approaches that are arguing back and forth or what's really happening?
1: I'll just say this Uh, fighting disagreement, um, fighting and disagreement is really healthy. Uh, I would uh, be very fearful if everybody was like Black Lives Matter is amazing and I want to follow that group. No, we need to have. Um, a, a deep understanding of why we have differing views and values. Um, that it, That's a healthy environment. What's unhealthy is when we drag each other down, tear each other down as if we are the state. When we treat each other um, in, in similar ways that we are, you know, fighting um, for police accountability. I think there's this way in which oftentimes our movement, and this is not unique for ours. This has happened in many movements. But oftentimes, the focus becomes the movement and discrediting people versus um, the focus being on, you know, the state and what they've done. Mind you, I'm not talking about not holding people accountable. Uh, when anybody holds a position of power, and any, uh, they should be held accountable. I want people to do that. But I think there are some um really healthy ways and healthy responses to doing that and i'm often not seeing that it's a movement culture to drag people to discredit people um to treat people badly and be and bully people as a way to get your needs met and i i don't think that's successful and i think part of that is a product of not having enough infrastructure in our movement to deal with conflict. And I really am invested in that. Some people that are doing amazing work around that is Miriam Kaba, um, who was in Chicago, but back in New York. Uh, Another person who's doing amazing work around that is a woman named Mia Mingus, um, who runs transformative justice and community accountability projects. We have to Learn how to deal with conflict because we will just repeat what we know and what our trauma um, and we will enact our trauma instead of enact what we think is best um, for ourselves and others.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Somebody in the movement uh, characterized some of the infighting like this that f- uh, they, some people want to work towards solutions and some people. Prefer to just be fighting and sort of characterize, like, look at these folks going to, let's for example, meet with, uh, you know, Obama and Valerie Jarrett and these sort of folks, where others are saying, you know, I'm going to reject that meeting on the day of the meeting very publicly so people see that I am not about talking to the power structure at all. Um, and without taking a, asking you to take a position uh, on either side, do you think that schism is accurate? I don't think so.
1: I think that's a way too lazy response to a people who've been extremely traumatized, who've put everything on the line for a movement. Um, I think what we're seeing actually is a lot of hurt people, a lot of people who've been disappointed by the last four years because um, what happens after you've put your job on the line, your family, your career, a lot of work and then we end up getting, you know, 45 as president. I think we're, there's a lot of misplaced rage Um, and I think um, there's a different conversation about like how we choose which tactics at which time. For Black Lives Matter, it wasn't uh, it wasn't necessary for us to sort of have these meetings with candidates. What was necessary is that we challenged the candidates on the principles of and values of Black Lives Matter and the larger movement for black lives. And I think that actually has allowed for fertile ground around what would then become, you know, labeled as the resistance um, towards uh, Trump and his administration. So there's two pieces here. There's a piece about... um, sort of the health and wellness of our movement. And then there's a second piece about which tactics different groups decide to do
0: based off of what is happening strategically. I was, I was, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, I was loving you for not saying his name. We're just going to say 45. We're <laughs> just never saying his name. And then you <laughs> jumped in and said his name. And I'm like, even still, you, you're, you're very purposeful. I love it about <laughs> saying 45. Um, but I mean, okay, 45, you guys as a movement it's decentralized so lots of people are making their own decisions but uh you did not choose to uh choose a candidate and back a candidate uh you choose you chose to push the democratic party to live up to uh you know what it what it claims to be do you think in retrospect? given the nightmare of 45 that perhaps you should have been standing up and saying, wait a minute now we need this because that cannot happen. In retrospect, I think we could have come
1: much harder against Trump. I don't think I would change how we responded to Dems though. Um, in retrospect, I think there could have been a stronger campaign to ensure that he wasn't become, going to become the president. And, um, Many of us did not do that because we just didn't believe it was possible, and that was our naivete, and that is a grave error in our movement, and I will take accountability for that.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was going to happen either. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> My son brings it up occasionally when I'm like that'll never happen. Well, you said that Trump would never win. I, I know I said that. Exactly. You have to bring that up. Exactly. Like, all the damn time. I know. It's um, really terrible. So I want to talk about some of the pieces and how you how you operate on some of the pieces within this. Just, you know, for folks who are coming behind you who want to know how to do it. How do you, Patrice, how do you lead people?
1: That's really, that's a great question. Uh, I lead people by centering specifically those that are most directly impacted by state violence. And while I center them, um, I'm deeply committed to their leadership development. And so I was a, I'm a trained organizer and people developed me. They spent time took care of me, made sure that I knew what I was doing, uh, understood organizing from, from front and back. And I try to gift that. I felt like that was a gift for me, and I try to gift that to other people as well. And so part of my leadership is uh, really centering those most impacted, giving them um, the tools so that they can be an effective voice, um, and helping uh provide enough resource so that we can actually build power
0: well let's go into the organizing piece uh, because you clearly you have lots of tactics and philosophies and thoughts around that how do you organize people how should we organize people we should there's a few
1: ways i think There isn't one way to organize people, but what I'll I'll start with is I think we need to be careful about trying to call ourselves advocates uh, and building advocacy infrastructures versus uh, base building um, community led infrastructures. Because when we develop something that is really advocacy based, it means there is like 10, 15, oftentimes, you know, 30, 40 staff members that are working on behalf of people. Uh, And that kind of allows for you to keep your job. Uh, Not one person can be the advocate for thousands of people. Um, It becomes uh, an an uphill battle. But if we are building institutions that are about building a base and building power, um, that it means that the organizer is just one small, tiny unit. Um, that is uh, a part of a larger infrastructure. That's about like how are we going to get these, you know, this one million um, person town, you know, to really build power a- up against a mayor or a sheriff or a chief of police. I think that's like that's the sweet spot, and I would love, and and it's kind of much harder to build power than to be an advocate, um, because it means that you, you have to put yourself in a position of not being sort of the voice, but rather the impetus for others to be the, bo- the voice.
0: So if younger or aspiring organizers are listening to this, what are a couple of things that they need to know as they go forward uh, with their dreams? Um, join something.
1: Um, um, very much against people being sort of like this individual that's just out here being you know really cool and woke um i think it's <laughs> I, I think it's fine to you know that we're the age of sort of like the social media star which is fine but then lend that stardom or you know all your twitter followers to, to an organization um there's a complicated dynamic of making activism celebrity and we're in that age. It's like very weird. But um, if that's the case, uh, you know, if if you've become very visible, um, go somewhere and find an organization that you love, that you love the work they're doing and use your visibility for that organization.
0: How do you shut down a highway?
1: (laughs) It takes a lot of preparation. Some people don't prepare, but I, I you know, some stuff is like organic and you you you'll see some images, of people are just literally jumping on the highway. But if you want to shut down a highway and in a way that allows for the press to understand why you're doing it, you're gonna wanna plan. You're gonna you're going to wanna talk through with you know, you could shut down a highway with like seven people. Although I wouldn't um recommend that anymore because we've seen lots of drivers just drive through people at this point, um, you know, but you can shut down a highway with 20 people and sit and have a conversation about what are the demands? What's the purpose? Why is this important? Does this highway impact people's, um, you know, does this highway impact capital? Is the highway that's like coming from a port or is it going to an airport? Um, I think there's a lot of ways to think about strategy. Uh, and I think, Uh, bring on lawyers. Um, You always want to have some legal observers uh, so they could be present on that highway to negotiate with the police. Um, And I think that there's this, um, uh, you shut down a highway by getting enough committed people to say, this is the tactic that's going to help move us in the right direction.
0: I always want to talk to folks about their most instructive failure, the failure that you know, they learned from and were propelled upwards by. Mm -hmm. What is that for you? Mm. You know,
1: I guess one way to put this is uh, as a young grassroots organizer, I remember just feeling very... what's the one failure like, I'm like I want to give an example what's the best way uh, Um, I remember when my father died and it really turned uh, put me into like a deep depression um, he was so young I felt like he died of racism and he deserved so much more uh, when he passed away I you know I I produced his whole funeral it was a beautiful beautiful convening and after everything was done I just was like I can't believe he's not here and it took me about a year and a half um, to get out of it I was I really fell into a deep depression um, you know was in therapy twice a week was in grief counseling and I had to drop out of school. I had to I had to stop working. I really relied on my uh, then partner to to take care of things financially, and it just felt like I was never going to get out of this pit of of sadness. And I think, you know, I maybe wouldn't categorize it as failure, but definitely one of the lowest moments of my life, where I, you know, it was it was really just a few years before Black Lives Matter started but I, I just couldn't imagine myself being in community um, i couldn't imagine myself organizing going back to school and i and i eventually did you know i, I took about a year off but i eventually got myself back together reapplied to U- UCLA um, and you know in 2012 you know graduated with, as an undergrad and and it was that it was that year, though, of depression where I was like, "Oof, this is, this is trying. This is like, you know, this is. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna get out of this." And that was definitely a pivotal moment for me.
0: Mm. If I could put my mic into your mind <laughs> and hear your self-talk, what is it? What is it like? Is it? Is it very positive? Is it? Is it moody? Does it go back and forth? You know, like, what? what is the internal voice uh, inside Patrice saying to you? It says,
1: um, girl, you need to get it all the way together. Why are you working so much? <laughs> okay, fine. You know, one day at a time. Work on this project. Make sure you are, you know, checking in with your family. See what folks need. Okay, it's time to take a break. Put down your phone. Make sure you're eating. All right. Have you drank enough water today? All right. Rewind. Hold on. Did you talk to that person? Did you miss that call? (laughs) Okay. Let's chill out. Let's watch Queen Sugar. Let's head to bed. That's pretty much what happens.
0: (laughs) Queen Sugar is your number one show. It's pretty much my number one show. It's
1: off the wow. chain,
0: <laughs> more, more than Insecure, more than Scandal, more than How to Get Away with Murder. Okay, those are my top four. Like all
1: horizontal, I don't have a hierarchy of my black director shows, but definitely okay. Ava, Shonda. Those are the. Those are my. Th- those two are my number one. Like I'm, I'm their fans, and I think they do amazing work. So I definitely watch. Insecure. Oh, and Issa Rae, obviously. So, insecure, yeah. scandal, Queen Sugar, how to get away with murder. And I, I'm still a Grey's Anatomy fan, so... Wow. <laughs> wow.
0: For all the talk of Patrice's warrior spirit, which is so real, never forget that she puts equal emphasis on fighting the system and repairing the spirit of oppressed people self-care is a critical part of her mission. It means connecting with friends, talking about your pain, reading a book that maybe takes you away from the struggle for a moment, doing things that help you repair yourself. Like an athlete, an activist, or an artist, or anyone needs time to work and time to recover so you can work at your capacity the next day. I'm not yet that good at the recovery part. I just want to work all the time, but I'm a work in progress. Thanks to Patrice for giving me her time once again. And thanks to you for giving me your time once again. I hope this conversation was valuable for you. Check out Patrice's new book, When They Call You a Terrorist. And if you want to talk to me about this episode or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review, please. And tell a friend. Help me spread the word about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford. And in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, baddest place in the world. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from successful folks, because the man ain't shut us down yet. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight.